And so we started off by thinking, let's start being more relational in the church. So instead of seeing the church as a place that was just an event that you go to and then you go out into the world to be relational, we started bringing that relationality into the church by saying Saturday night is a time we're all going to hang out with each other. It's not in a program of the church. It wasn't even an official ministry of the church to start off with. It was just a group of, t- uh, of young adult youth leaders saying, let's hang with each other. If we're encouraging the kids to be a community, why don't we be a community? Welcome back, everyone, to the Shock Absorber podcast. It is fantastic to have you along with us, and I'm also very excited, and it is also fantastic to have my usual co-host joining me, Tim Billhart. How are you, mate? I'm doing very well this morning. That's good to hear. And Stu, how are you? Yeah, really good, Joel. That's good. Well, that was fired up. I'm yeah, excited. Yeah, I've had a coffee. <laughs> Still having a coffee. Um, no, I'm just, I'm just excited about today's content. Okay, that's good. Um, we, uh, if you're watching on YouTube, we're actually uh, in a new, we've got a new background, new set, because um, we're actually sitting in front of a green combi van, Stu, which seems you've seemed to have parked that inside Sorrelville Church. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> that's also why I'm excited, because I love, I love my combi. <laughs> <laughs> so the reason that we have the combi, though, guys, is um, before we get started, is that we're excited to announce that we have a Shock Absorber conference coming up, which is on the 30th of October. Now, at the moment, it's going to be online because of certain COVID restrictions and lockdowns and those kind of things. But um, we're going to try and help people focus on intergenerational ministry. Is that right, Stu? And um, do you want to tell us about this combi first? But where did okay, you, I'll tell you, you a little bit from? about the combi. So this is um, a 1974 combi with original putt colour scheme. Uh, some combi aficionados might say that two-tone combis didn't happen in the 70s, that they stopped in the 60s. Really? But they, I actually got a brochure from 1974 that before I did this car up that actually had this uh, colour layout. So, yeah, it's an original colour, which I really like. Is there a name for the colour? Uh, there is, but I've forgotten what it is. Okay. Yeah, if I was actually a real... Um, Combi. Restore a combi person, <laughs> I'd probably know that. But it's... Um, yeah, I just really love the car. Um it's, uh, I've had it since 2004, so I found it in a shed in Western Sydney and I did it up from scratch. And it's my second combi. My first combi I got off a very dear friend called Andrew Callow, who was my first youth minister, and he had the car. And when he moved on from Guy Wranglickin, he sold the car to me and I had that till 2004 until it rusted out and then <laughs> I got this one. So I've driven these for a long time now, like 30 years. So what is your love of combis? I don't Where does know. that come from? You know, I've been asked before and I think I can only – think of the fact that I remember having a matchbox car when I was a little kid that was a combi van <laughs> and thinking that was my favourite matchbox car. So I think that might be where it came from. But it, it is very versatile and you can throw boards in the back and heaps of people. So there's been lots of youth ministry done in this car. Yes. And as we'll talk about today, place sharing is uh, part of uh, what we're going to look at today about how to, how to actually go out of the four walls of the church. And uh, having a combi to throw gear into is really a good way to... to to move around and yeah it's good it's Plus, an image i love camping in it with with my wife lou and the kids so that's cool it's an image burned into my brain of you like sitting in the front of the combi you know how you're like right at the front of the combi yeah, like yeah. just your head is just like mm, yeah. i'm ready to go <laughs> like yeah, that's, that's right yeah you're <laughs> ready to go there's literally two millimeters between me and the car that's in front of me so yeah if i have a car accident it's it's game over but um <laughs> 
Thankfully, the combi doesn't go very fast. So, you know, yeah, you well, go. it goes, goes very slowly. Yeah, that's true. I have had one speeding ticket in the combi, though, right. so I'm quite proud of that. But, um, <laughs> um, the, the, actually, the policeman actually pulled me over. He was surprised. He said, I'm actually actually surprised I'm giving you this ticket. I said, thank you. I'll take that as a compliment. It's like his first ever speeding ticket for a combi he's given out. Maybe, yeah, could be. Yeah, but when we got this car done up, um, we had two months long service leave due. And so uh, Louise and myself... And my two boys, Ethan, who was six at the time, and Elijah, who was only six months, we drove to Cooktown and back in the combi van from Sydney. So that's like almost all the way up the east coast of Australia. And um, we just camped in the rainforest all the way through up Queensland, hung out with platypus and cassowary and went to the Daintree and had all sorts of adventures in it. So I've also got lots of nice memories from the car as well. That's really cool. That, so yeah. Yeah, so the reason that we have it in the background, though, is because we, yes. we have got the conference coming up. Um, and we we're going to spotlight in that section, we were going to talk about, uh, first of all, helping people establish intergenerational ministry yeah. amongst their churches. Yeah. And, and we're going to also invite people from inside our church to learn more yeah. about it. Yeah. Um, but we were going to make a focus on hospitality and, yeah. and meals. Do you want to dig into that a little bit yeah, for us? Yeah, well, well, Joel, the, some of the good feedback we've been getting from the Shock Absorber podcast is people saying, you know, how can we do this in our context? Uh, Tim invited me to a YouthWorks Roundtable recently. Tim might want to speak to that a little bit. And we had a really good opportunity to, at that roundtable to talk about intergenerational ministry. And I had an opportunity to share about Soul Revival and the Shock Absorber at that conference. And a number of people were saying, we're really excited about the idea of food. That seems like a really good place to start that can help us to... Mm do a meal with our service to help people come together and actually get to know each other better. And so we thought, why don't we do our first conference this year and actually, as part of that conference, look at uh, two things. We're going to look at meals, how, how to do meals, how we do it, and actually dig into the fact that the meal, it's not about how to do the dinner, or the, though we'll give lots of detail on how to actually pull it off, but it's actually about relationships and wanting to be friends and wanting to be a family and wanting to uh, have that expression. Because if you have that motivation and then, then the, the meals work, I think. The other thing we're going to do is look at about how um, in our, in our, since we've started the podcast, we've been really refining um, our model of church planning as well. And we're going to look at uh, the West Ride story because at West Ride, we've got a, a group of people who have started the latest Soul Revival church plant and they've come up with a new idea called Connected Communities. And the link in with the cars is we're saying that we're using the car analogy for the shock absorber, obviously. We're saying young people are the shock absorber of the church. But what we're going to do at the conference is unpack that um, methodology a bit more and say that, you know, if you've got a small group of people, you only need a small vehicle. And if you've got a, a bigger group of people, you need a bigger vehicle. And if you've got a large group of people, you need a bigger car or a bigger vehicle and as a result we're sort of saying same with church planning and and this applies to youth ministry planning and kids ministry planning uh, we're going to help people step through three steps of growing your ministry and the first step we, we've had a bit of fun calling that a vespa which is a little motorbike and you know if you've just got one person or two one or two people you can get around on a on a vespa but then if your friendship group grows you might want to get a small car and so if, again as a bit of fun we're saying a small car is like a Beetle. You might drive around with four or five friends in that. And then if you're, you you grow and your family grows and you need a bigger car, well, you know, you might need to upgrade to a combi van. <laughs> and so we've taken those cars cause, and that bike because they're fairly uh, culturally iconic and a bit of fun. And, and also uh, it just helps you to get your head around the fact that whether you're starting a kids ministry, a youth ministry or a, uh, a whole church plant, you can start small and grow. And it can be simple and 
inexpensive and can be organic, but the structures need to grow as your community grows. So we're going to talk about that at the conference. Yeah, exactly. So I'm really looking forward to that. It's going to be online on Zoom so anyone can come on. It'll be free as well. Yep, isn't free the other thing we're planning yep. to do. So um, keep an eye out for that, guys, if you're listening or watching. Uh, 30th October, save the date, and then we'll, we have more details to come in the yeah, coming weeks. Yeah, people will be able to register, won't they? Yes, the absolutely. Track, we're yeah. setting up a website for people to be able to register. So yeah, we should that's have that good. ready yeah. very soon. Uh, now, we are going to, uh, this week, we're still discussing uh, engaging the youth culture in um, church. Uh, we started it with saying that the uh, the church may have an image problem with, <laughs> with the church. But um, today we're going to look in particular at a book by um, an author by, called Andrew Root about revisiting relational youth ministry, which came out uh, around 2008, I believe. But first I thought we might... Um, hit on a cultural artifact this week uh, and uh, I, w- I thought if we could um, if you wouldn't mind me if you would allow me to is to <laughs> apply it to um, that time um, and just before it it represented uh, a, a shift in um, television series which I thought was really cool so I'm a huge fan of the West Wing which is a little bit before that but then there's also shows like um, The Sopranos Dexter, Breaking Bad, and they're all sort of like a rise of the anti-hero, which I thought was really interesting. Um, and then it was also a move towards some very uh, different type of television in terms of what, what was cool on television and a much higher quality. I don't know, have you guys ever watched any of those shows? I don't I don't know if you, I know you're a fan of the West Wing, Stu, but have you ever watched any of Breaking Bad or The Sopranos? Yeah, no, I haven't, I haven't watched, I, I've been interested in hearing people talk about them, but I've only seen West Wing, yeah. Yeah, does that, does that if you if you hear people like me talk about the Sopranos, you think I'm cooler? <laughs> well, I've always thought you were cooler, Joel, because um, you are very cool. But uh, yeah, no, I think I think I get the the cultural moment that you're talking about that the zeitgeist of, of the 2008 time. It felt like a change, I feel even like though a cult following. Yeah, even though um, you know there was there was uh, you know I didn't watch those shows. I, I could get a sense there was a change. Yeah, yeah 2008 it, was. A new thing. Yeah. yeah, it was like a movement into. It also seems to represent a time of um, the internet because you, you've spoke. We've spoken about before. The iPhone was released in two thousand eight yeah. too. Did, uh, did you get the first iPhone? I remember because like I'm an Apple fanboy, but I think you're an even bigger Apple fanboy. Yeah, unfortunately, I've I've been dragged into the black hole of Apple. <laughs> I think. Yeah, I I um, got my first Mac Plus in nineteen eighty seven when I first started university. Wow. So I've that's cool. That's all I've ever used. Actually, I've never used a PC. So really, yeah. So yeah, I did get an iPhone. Yeah, yeah, and then I think that those two things together represented a bit of a shift in the mm. internet. Like people were able to obviously converse more about these cult followings around those shows and stuff yeah, like that. So yeah. I thought that was an interesting time to represent what we're going to talk about today. Uh, that seminal work by Andrew Root, Tim, do you want to give us a, a little bit of a summary of what he's talking about? Because he bases himself a lot out of coming out of the incarnational model. Do you want to give us the summary of what he's trying to posit? Yeah, you're right. So he comes at it from a inter- um, sorry, an incarnational viewpoint. But his whole premise in that book is to be Um, arguing against what is commonly thought of as a relational model. So he's trying to pick apart a fairly typical um, evangelical approach to youth ministry particularly that would be uh, we want to go on mission 
Uh, so he's got that kind of impulse. I think he'd be aligned with sort of Chap Clark in that. You want to be outside the walls of the church. Uh, you want to be missioning to those who do not yet know Jesus, um, particularly those who wouldn't fit maybe a bead model of just invite your friends. Like actually, you know, let's go into the spaces where um, people are not even thinking about Jesus, um, particularly places of hurt and pain. Um, so he's going into those places um, and thinking about what does it mean to be relational to them. So he did his... Um, some master's work, I think it was, um, at Fuller in California. He spent a lot of time on the streets in LA um, thinking about youth ministry in that context and how to look after the teenagers there. Um, but what he's uh, wrestling with is the idea that um, we go and be friends with someone so that we can win them to Christ. Um, and what he tries to discover over this time and he's thinking through is is that manipulative? Uh, is there something, sort of this utilitarianness to it where you're actually going, not just because they're a valuable human being made in the image of Jesus and, and worthwhile in their own right, um, but actually they're just a means to an end and the end is their salvation. Um, and so you're... Uh, a sort of a crass version would be, I'm actually not trying to be your friend because I value you. I'm just trying to be your friend so I can win you for Jesus. Um, and so he tries to just, I mean, he drives a wedge between those two things uh, and then points out, well, maybe that's manipulative, um, that we're not, uh, again, and it's kind of crass version, I'm not actually interested in you. Um, and so what he's trying to bring there is say, no, 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 let's revisit that idea of the relational ministry that is a means to an end. But actually, what would it mean to take those people seriously as image bearers of Christ um, and actually just genuinely know them and love them as in their own right. Um, we don't have an agenda for them per se. We actually just want to be there with them. And so this is where the idea of where Stu just said before, the place sharing comes in. You actually just go into their space and share their space with them and get to know them there for their own sake. Um, and f and so he brings in there um, some uh, theology, particularly some Lutheran theology. He brings in a lot of Dietrich Bonhoeffer is one of his big theological heroes. Um, and one of the things that comes out of that is the idea that uh, even just in that moment of place sharing with another person, uh, in that moment, Christ is there. And so you can see there the incarnational theology come through that uh, just by being with someone, that itself is a Christ moment um, because you're being Christ to that person. You're bringing in um, Jesus into that moment. Um, you don't have to be there with this agenda of having them converted, though, of course, I don't think he would say that we don't want them to not be converted, but that's not the agenda. We're not there to see them as a means to an end. So I think that's where he's coming from. Um, and so he wraps up a number of those kind of things. But, uh, yeah, it's a really interesting take. And as you say, it's quite a seminal work in that, um, yeah, 2007, 2008. Mm. As usual, Tim, thank, an excellent summary. So thank you, <laughs> thank you for that. Um, Stuart, I was just going to ask you the question that you're doing a PhD right now. Yes. Um, and you said that you've actually been leaning into a lot of Root's work. Where is, where's he, what's he coming from? What's the background that he's coming from in terms of what Tim talked about? Yeah, the two things I really like about Andrew Root is, well, he's an incredible communicator. He's very clear. He's very clever. So that's very – he's a really good read too, easy to read. Um He's uh, probably a contemporary with me in terms of age, I think. Uh, I haven't checked that, but I, I get a sense from his stories in his book that he's probably coming from my right. generation, yeah. yeah. Uh, so he's kind of a Gen Xer, I think, and he's grown up under uh, watching this uh, baby boomer um, homogeneous unit principle expression of 
incarnationalism, which is very focused on events and focused on uh, tapping into cool youth culture to try and be cool to the young crew. Uh, to earn the right to be heard uh, means that you need to have some cultural cachet with the young people that you're ministering to. And he sort of stepped back from that a bit and, as a lot of people did in my generation, started to be a little cynical of that. And what's interesting about Root is he didn't abandon the relational youth ministry completely and incarnationalism, but he seeks to revisit it, I think, from a Gen X point of view. And so how can we make this a bit more authentic, which is a big theme from my generation, I think. The other thing I like about Root is... I really like his historical perspective and as you'll know if you've been listening or watching some of the podcasts here at the Shock Absorber, we love to look at historical background to things as well as just what's happening at the moment because one of the things that's happening in the digital age is people are, are so bombarded with so much information that they're finding it difficult to even absorb all the information of their era and so there's almost like this decision you have to make, do I just focus on on the history of popular music for example or do i focus on my generation because it's so such a canon now of music that it's almost impossible to get your head around all of it when as i was growing up rock and roll was still relatively new and so i could listen to the music of the 80s and 90s and i could also listen to the old stuff in the 70s well that gave me a historical perspective and i think what that's just an example of what we're trying to do here on the shock absorber by with youth ministry and with kids ministry and with church planting and church ministry we're trying to give people a bit of a historical connection for many of us who haven't got time to actually dig into the history of youth ministry but what root does really well is he gives that historical perspective before he revisits it and so he's got this really uh good talent at being able to look at this huge body of uh history of youth ministry and then analyze that and think about it so that it's really helpful for the now so that's what i like about him so we could even dip into that history a little bit in a minute to show you the background that he feels led to the incarnational impulse if you're that was going to be my next question is like where, where what has led him to feel like he needs to address the incarnational yeah. model again so so as tim said he's worried about youth ministry has possibly in the relational youth ministry sense become a bit manipulative that okay if i'm going to reach punks then i need to dress like a punk and i need to go and live like a punk and listen to their music and it's a bit manipulative because i might not be a punk i might be putting those clothes on yeah, so that uh, I can yeah go. i was going to say it also feels a bit disingenuous to your own self when yeah you're yeah that. well i mean i i'm not i'm not a relational theologian myself but um looking at it from ruth's point of view who wants to recapture an essence uh, re, re, revisit it um you know he he would consider things like pete ward back in the 1980s said uh, but in England when he was working in London to punks and, that, and that's why the punk thing came to mind not necessarily because it's a relevant thing to right now but when Ward was trying to reach out to punks like who were listening to The Clash and the Sex Pistols in London and dressing really differently in the hair, crazy hair yeah. he said they actually wouldn't listen to adults unless they wore jeans so he got a pair of jeans now there's a sense that that was a really good thing to do and a loving thing to do um, and 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 I'm sure that Pete Ward had a good impulse for that but the institutionalization of that sort of approach to root is well it has become a bit manipulative where people go oh I'm a youth minister I'd better go buy a pair of jeans and go out and hang out at a skate park and wear a Ramones t-shirt or whatever it is so that I might look like I'm I'm you know going to connect with this particular group of people uh, so what what root does really well is he goes where did that come from let's go back and have a look at it and just as a really brief overview uh I don't want to go too long into this today, but 
he he breaks down the history of youth ministry in his book into the first half of the 20th century and the second half of the 20th century. But I find the most interesting part the second half of the 20th century because what he looks at there is this massive shift in culture. Now, today we talked about the iPhone. Now, that is for us in our generation probably the biggest cultural shift that we've experienced. Yes, uh, September 11 was a big moment. Yes, there's been other huge things. Climate change is a massive moment for us as well. All those things are. But I think the the technological advancement of giving me the iPhone where I can actually engage in social media or I can read so much more stuff. I can watch TV. You were talking about the increased call of particular shows that now can be streamed, streaming shows. All that is just a phenomenal leap forward in terms of how we communicate and it's changed the way we live. And in fact, some people have said, Tim might want to mention this later, but it's even rewiring young people's minds so that they think differently. So it's a huge change in our culture. Well, we'll root um, not only sits in that moment, which I find fascinating, but he also goes back to uh, an earlier time where relational ministry really took off and he looks at why did it take off. So he has a bit of a sociological explore, exploration in the book where if, if I could just briefly, Joel, just say a few things about that. What I find interesting is he says that the invention of the high school is actually a huge moment in in yeah. our culture because now young people, young young teenagers are all crowded together in a high school and he says that actually changes the way they relate because once upon a time their family unit was their most important cultural uh, place where they gathered their values but now the high school is becoming more important to teenagers than the family unit and of course we've talked about that when Tim really articulately last week talked about uh, family ministry and how we need to rediscover that because in a sense we lost a lot of our family values uh, with the invention of the high school however what was clever about Root's book is he looks at how Christians adapted to that change now uh, Root looks at uh, Jim Rayburn and Jim Rayburn was at that moment he was uh, an American youth minister who was seeing this development of new cultural values in the high schools and he saw it uh, uh, Root describes it as like all of a sudden there's a new cool that's emerging in the high schools that what is cool is not the, the stuff mum and dad have been telling me at home, but actually what my friends are doing, the clothes they're wearing, the music they're listening to. And in the 1950s and 60s, we have the cultural revolution and there's this new sense of cool that comes along. The other thing that the high school does is uh, not only are young people gathering in the high schools, they're also spending a lot more time together outside of high school. So as well as high school, they've got sport, they've got parties. And so never before in human history have young people had so much freedom to go and do what they want to do and listening to what they want to do and be with people they want to be with. So Root defines this era in the 1940s, 50s and 60s as the era of self-chosen relationships. So instead of the kids having relationships chosen for them by their parents, we go to this church as a family, you will come along. Now it's like, well, I go to this high school and there's a party on and the cool kids are going to go and hang out at a pool somewhere and I'm going to go. They're choosing those self-made relationships. And what, what Root does very carefully and cleverly, I think, is that he looks at how youth ministry adjusted to that with incarnational theology and says, let's actually have a self-chosen Christianity and that we give young people the opportunity to choose a relationship with God. But it wasn't just Jim Rayburn who was experimenting with that. Root goes back a couple of decades to Billy Graham when Billy Graham was in Youth for Christ or whatever the youth ministry model he was in. I think he was in that sort of era of the 
camping ministry and the tent ministry when that was all emerging from just before the Second World War. And Billy Graham had already started to pick up on this self-chosen relationship idea too, according to Root. And he says that when you listen to Billy Graham, if you're not familiar with him, again, that's understandable because there's so much background you need to cover. But he was probably the greatest evangelist of the 20th century. And he really set uh, a model for evangelism that, that permeated the whole of the second half of the 20th century. So that's a big call, but that's how big he was. And we could maybe even look at Billy Graham one day on a podcast. But Billy Graham's preaching really emphasised the opportunity that the hearers had to make a relationship with Jesus. Almost in that cultural moment of self-chosen relationships, Billy was saying, you can choose a relationship with God if you choose Jesus. So there was a real emphasis on that self-chosen relationship you could have with God. And it was hugely successful. I mean, to this day, uh, in Australia, there's one of the biggest sporting venues in Australia is the Melbourne uh, Cricket Ground, I think it is. And that completely sold out with over 100,000 people going to a Billy Graham crusade to listen to Billy's preaching. And to this day, it's the biggest attendance at the uh, Melbourne Cricket Ground, bigger than all the cricket matches and AFL games that have been played. And so that was a huge moment in 1958 when the Billy Graham Crusade came to Australia. It really transformed the, the landscape of Christianity in Australia. So this idea of Billy picking up this cultural moment of self-chosen relationships helped him to communicate to a new generation that was thinking differently. And so what Jim Rayburn does is he gives a theological perspective to that. And he says, well, Jesus came to the Jews to be a Jew to the Jews, so I'm going to go to young people and become a young person to the young people. And that created a whole industry, actually, around incarnationalism within youth ministry that that grew in momentum during the 60s, 70s, 80s and 90s, as we've talked about, uh, Pete Ward and then Mark Center. And what, what Root's doing really helpfully is he's got a tip of the hat to those great thinkers of youth ministry history, but he's also asking the question, is there a shadow to this good thing now on the podcast we also often talk about every good thing has shadows and creatures live in the shadows so what are the creatures that live in the shadows of the incarnational impulse to be uh, a young person to the young people and go out into the community and buy a pair of jeans and a skateboard and hang out at a skate park well the the problem is as tim said it can become a bit manipulative so in 2008 while we've got the the, the iphone coming in this new fresh look at how we communicate it's interesting that there's um, a moment where root speaks into this moment just as jim rayburn spoke into and billy graham spoke into that self-chosen relationship moment because in a way we're still in an era of self-chosen relationships people still choose their own relationships but what root's going to do which tim might want to expand on uh, later too is that he's going to say we need to actually get back to just being in the place with young people instead of going there with a purpose to convert them they're actually important and so uh, this is his shift in not throwing out incarnationalism but revisiting it and and looking at it in the context of now tim but what um that with that uh, uh historical background i was trying mm. to remember the word uh when you hear that and, and do you i'm just wondering what your reflections are on that but also um, do you teach that at when in your uh, job around incarnational ministry as well? Um, do I teach it? Uh, I mean, we in the youth ministry courses that uh, Youth Works College has. Uh, yes, they, we do a, a historical assessment of those things. Um, certainly, in the family ministry subject that I've done, we've 
we talk about historically a lot of the things we talked about last week, particularly. Um, my reflections on it. One of the actual interesting things I was thinking as Stu was talking, a little bit of a tangent, but thinking about the high school idea um is the other thing that high schools do um that feeds into teenage culture um is that it uh it selects for you your peers as the most significant influences for you so you will spend the majority of your week with people your exact same age Mm. um so as it comes into the intergenerational conversation um, it's really interesting to think that, uh, you know, it's, it's a unique moment in sort of, you know, uh, Western culture, um, unlike many traditional societies and where we would have been before sort of industrialised high schooling, that uh, a teenager was most likely spend a lot of their time with people who are unlike them in terms of age. Uh, they'd be spending time with the, the children in their families, speaking with, spending time with older people in the workplace, um, other generations. But actually by sort of really um, industrialising this schooling model that you go from year 7 to year 8 to year 9 to year 10, um, you're spending the majority of your week, if you're 14, you spend all of your time with 14-year-olds. Um, and you might see occasionally a 13-year-old and a 15-year-old in the playground, um, but actually all of your identity is being formed by people who are exactly like you in terms of age. Um, and so intergenerationally speaking, as we think about, uh, we've talked before about people like um, Vygotsky. I did some work on a lady called Barbara Rogoff and who's got some interesting theories as well, but just about the idea of how uh, when it, it's quite uh, unique uh, for us to have this kind of model where you spend time with that. Uh, and part of the Christian response, as Stu said, there's um, part of that comes into the church in the youth groups as we try and specialise youth ministry for particular age groups. Um, and again, it's it's quite common if, as churches grow, uh, as we you know, under God hope to do, um, that we can you then cut down those sizes even more. So uh, when we were at uh, Guy Anglican, when I was coming through the youth group, we had a year seven, eight group, and now we had about you know fifty to eighty depending on the year. Um, then you had a year nine, ten group. Then you had a well, uh, year eleven went to the Saturday night, um, and at one point we also started a senior high group Bible study as well, specifically for those. Um, and so you again, you're you're having this. Um, homogeneous unit kind of thing you're saying these particular people are the ones who are most influential for you um, in that space now we're all doing it within a um, heterogeneous model an all age all stage model and there was we've talked about that in the history of this podcast um, but that's one of the really interesting things that comes through there as well so the Christian reaction one is to bring that uh, industrialized schooling model into the church um, and see you know, your children's ministry and youth ministry do that. The other reaction, which uh, isn't as influential here, but it might be more influential to some of our American listeners and viewers, um, would be the rise of the homeschooling model here by conservative Christians as well. Because that, again, is um, there's a lot of things playing into that, but part of it is um, you, you're trying to bring back the, the family and the household as the most influential space uh, for a child's life and so growing them up through there as well. Um, but I think I've taken a fair bit off track from where we oh, were. That's interesting. <laughs> no, I think, about. That, I think that was really helpful. Yeah, that actually. was cool. Cause I was just thinking in terms of that high school thing too. I'd never thought about that before, that like oh, I'm just put with the same age of people, um, which can obviously in uh, contrast to how we do ministry generationally, I was just thinking that, do you want to say something? I was just going to say, so what that does, to go back to the the coolness idea that we were talking about, is that um, it kind of uh, accelerates those 
those niche things that you're into um, because all of a sudden you have people who are all the same age um, and then you get the, the influences that they're listening to and those influences are not being shaped by people who are older or younger than them. It's just being shaped by those. Um, and, of course, there's a whole commercialism aspect and, yeah, MTV and um, those kind of things. And the other thing that happens around this, yeah, 2006 and, and the growth of um, the internet and our access is this fracturing of interests as well. So when I was in high school in the mid nineties, you could pretty much guarantee that all of us, you know, would come to school and we'd all watch the same shows. Um, or it might be, Oh, you watch channel seven. Oh, but most of us are watching channel nine. Um, because there were only three, maybe four options. Um, and you pretty much guarantee everyone was watching the same stuff. But when we get the, um, plethora of all these ones like you talked about these extra shows um yeah these fracturing and so all of a sudden like my kids can go to school and they watch a particular show on netflix and 20 of their friends watch 20 other shows yeah. on netflix that were all different to each other yeah. um and so that's really interesting then you get a whole lot of things cultural things that come out of that as well no i think like if you're talking about when i was at high school that, that was almost the, the rise of the dvd box set so yeah, that's when yeah. all those shows were coming out so i'm like watching sopranos and i'm watching west wing and, the, and my friends are like what <laughs> like they had no idea what i was watching and it's like that's the very beginning of exactly what you're talking about um and I think, like, in contrast to what you're saying about how you, you're just into particular years, you know, you're 14, you're 15-year-olds, I thought that was um, interesting to contrast it with, Stu, that when you first came into school to do scripture with us and mm. cheap lunch with mm. us, we were like, why are these older guys hanging out with us? Because it was like, I think that might have been perhaps part of the appeal to me for youth group was that, well, actually, these guys are a lot older than me, but they're just trying to be friends. They're not... It was almost like uh, it, it created a curiosity in me that was like, oh, I wonder why these guys just want to be my friends. Now, having said that, I know that you also, it wasn't based upon the coolness factor of you guys. I think it was kind of like the coolness factor was they just want to be our friends, <laughs> which, is, which is actually pretty cool. That would be in contrast to what the relational ministry is trying to say. Would you agree with that or not? Yeah, well, we have some things that we have in common with the relational ministry and some things that we've got a little bit not in common. I share Andrew Root's concern about manipulative youth ministry, and so we don't want to manipulate young people. Uh, Andrew Root has tried to uh, re-look re re at the whole incarnational approach to try and see if there's a way forward from his perspective but rather than going on that journey with him we ended up going on a different journey uh, I mean I only read him you know probably 18 years after I started youth ministry anyway but the direction that I started going in on in the 90s was uh, rather than embracing incarnational youth ministry to actually think about uh, being observably Christian but do that in the context of where people were. So it's slightly different. So instead of going into a skate park to earn the right to be heard and dressing like a skater, um, we would be observably Christian and be clothed with Christ. So it was really obvious we were Christians wherever we were. And so we started off by thinking, let's start being more relational in the church. So instead of seeing the church as a place that was just an event that you go to and then you go out into the world to be relational, we started bringing that relationality into the church by saying Saturday night is a time we're all going to hang out with each other. It's not in a program of the church. It wasn't even an official ministry of the church to start off with. It was just a group of, t uh, of young adult youth leaders saying, let's hang. 
with each other. If we're encouraging the kids to be a community, why don't we be a community? Because no matter what we teach them on Friday night, odds are that they'll probably end up copying what we do on a Saturday night, um, whatever we tell them to do on a Friday night. So if we go on a Friday night and run the youth group and then we go out partying and drinking and carrying on, they'll end up doing that too. And it's not a bad thing to go to a party and have a drink, but what we thought is what if we were observably countercultural and encourage them to embrace their Christian identity in the context? Now, there's a really interesting um moment we had was light bulb moment which is quite an unusual one was i was uh studying at university and reading up on uh, of all people an italian communist by the name of gramsci (laughs) and the light bulb which might sound strange because i i'm not a left-wing thinking person myself but i was i was um i was tutoring uh communism at university as a political science tutor and was really good friends with my communist uh lecturer and he encouraged me to read uh this uh, thinker because he said the stuff I was grappling with as a Christian was similar to what the workers were grappling with in Italy in the 1930s of all <laughs> things so if you haven't had a, a history overload yet just bear with me just a sec because in the 90s I'm reading this guy called Antonio Gramsci and his big point was hey I'm I'm in these Italian factories telling all these workers that they're being uh, taken advantage of and oppressed by the bourgeoisie which is the owners of capital and and yet the proletariat, the workers, aren't rising up to overthrow the bourgeoisie like I'm encouraging them to. There's no revolution, communist revolution, to overthrow the Italian order. Why is that? And he was really frustrated because the Russian revolution had only just happened in the in the Russian context and the proletariat had risen up against the bourgeoisie. So he's like, why are these people refusing to listen to this idea? And he came up with this idea called hegemony. Now, the hegemony was an idea that the proletariat had bought into the Italian dream, which sometimes is called the American dream too, you know how the Australian dream. The Australian dream. Yeah. If you work hard you can you can become rich. That that was the the idea that, that was permeated through his culture. And so the idea was if you embrace uh, work really hard in the factory, one day you might own a factory. And and Gramsci said that was ridiculous because there was all these poor working class people that were never going to earn a factory, but they were working more than they should because they thought they could maybe earn this right Um, unfortunately in his context he argued that the church was actually helping in the oppression because the church was saying don't worry about misery in this life because you'll earn eternal salvation in the next life so Gramsci was sorry yeah Gramsci was really negative towards the church but what I got from it was this idea of hegemony which is really interesting that there's sometimes people who are oppressed will actually live under a false dream and that can be going on now at the same time I'm reading this, again, bear with me, a movie comes out in the 90s about the Black Panthers in America, of all things. Now, what has the Black Panthers got to do with the 1930s communist? Well, in the, in the Black Panther story, there's two young uh, African-American guys who are driving around in Oakland in San Francisco and they're seeing that their people are so oppressed and they decide they'll do something about it. So they've gone to law school and they've learnt that you're allowed to carry guns. So they go buy black leather jackets black berets, black sunglasses, paint a big panther on the side of a car and they go and they buy guns from the local shop because they're allowed to drive around and they almost become this paramilitary little police force that doesn't uh, do anything but try to intimidate the police. And there's this scene in the movie where 
they've all got this really terrific afro hairs. They look so cool. They're at a university campus selling Mao's Little Red Book to university students, not because they're communists, but because they're trying to earn money so they can buy more guns, (laughs) (laughs) which is quite hilarious because they go to Chinatown, buy the communist Little Red Books from Chinatown, then go back with the money they've earned from the students and buy more guns. So (laughs) this is all happening in the 1960s. Great, Great story if you've never heard of the Black Panthers. But the relevance of this is, their parents were saying it to these young black guys, what are you doing this for? This is terrible. If you just straighten your hair, wear a suit and work with what the white people are telling you to, you will be successful. And the penny dropped for me that what was happening was the Black Panthers had realised that they were living under a hegemony that was saying that if you live like a white person, even though you're an African-American, you will become successful. And their parents had bought into that lie, that hegemony. But they decided to reject it. And the way they rejected it was to say, no matter how much we straighten our curly hair, no matter how much we wear white people's clothes, we will always be African-Americans and they will see us as different. So let's just embrace our African-American heritage. Now, I'm not arguing for communism. I'm not arguing for the Black Panther response. There's a lot of things uh, in that context that if you look into the story, there's a lot of sad things that happen there but um but if you're interested actually in a contemporary movie that explains it there's a, a movie that's come out on netflix called the chicago seven that explores some of that people might want to watch that screenplays but, by the writer of west wing there you way. go oh it's a terrific <laughs> movie unreal movie yeah. but um yeah there's uh i think it's bobby seal uh one, he's he's actually uh on trial with a, a group of other people but anyway um the the thing that i thought in the 90s was he, the last little piece that i'll add to this is I'm listening to Triple J, driving along in my car, and Triple J go, how are these Christians, you know, they play all these youth group games in youth group to try and be cool, but they're not cool. And I'm like, I think I've told that story in an earlier podcast, and I'm listening to commentators from Triple J in Sydney, which is a radio youth radio network in Sydney, laughing at Christians trying to be cool, and they're actually laughing at us, and I thought, we're under a hegemony. If we... We think if we can be cool, then we will actually be successful in our youth group. So, so yes, there is an incarnational impulse that is incredibly uh, worthy, which is like let's try and love people who don't understand the culture of the church by trying to take the church outside of the four walls of our cultural context and go into other cultures and let's use incarnational theology to try and help us to do that. Yes, Root sees that as manipulative at, when it's not working well, but I saw it as hegemonic. So I saw this impulse of Christians in the 70s and 80s to try and be cool, to win over the cool kids, which is what Jim Rayburn said. Jim Rayburn said, go into the school, go to the coolest jocks and get them to come to your church because if you get the cool kids to come, then your church will be cool. If you get to become cool, then, then all the kids will come, which is classic homogeneous unit principle because that's what McGavin said. He'd been in India and he said, if you can get the Brahmins, the high caste, to come to church, then all the other castes will follow. So when he came back to America, he said the same thing as Jim Rayburn, let's get the cool kids to come to church. And that's what led us to have professionalism in churches, to make events that were as good as anything you'd see in a club or in a movie theatre or really professional music, great car parks, you know, really good coffee. If you do it all really well, people go, oh, the Christians are as cool as us. But what I realised through Gramsci, through the Black Panthers, through Triple J, was, hang on, Christian young people are living under a hegemony, which says, if you be cool like the culture, then we'll accept you, but they never will. 
because we're always Christian. No matter how cool we try and make our youth group, we don't have alcohol, we don't have the sexual revolution, we don't have key ingredients to being cool. And so what we decided to do in the 90s, which was a different approach to uh, what Andrew Ruder said, is let's just be Christian. Let's let our hair grow curly. Let's, let's be Christian. So when we came into school, Joel, we came in as Christians. And so that's why we would carry a Bible. Like we weren't afraid of carrying it. That was more of a cultural artifact and a semiotic to us than a pair of jeans. So that, yeah, we might dress like a skater and we also carry Bibles. We also come with the word of God and, and we are countercultural in that just like the Black Panthers drove around. Uh, there's a cool story about the Black Panthers pulling up to an alleyway and this, unfortunately, is a terrible situation. There was two policemen uh, bashing this uh, African-American in an alleyway and the two uh, Black Panthers got out on the curbside. It's in the movie Panther. And and they cock their guns uh, and stand there and look at the police. And the police come over and say to, to the African-Americans, what are you doing, boy? And then the African-American Black Panthers go, we're watching you, pig. And he goes, don't call me pig. And he goes, well, don't call me boy. And so there was this standoff. And then the police go, is that, is that gun loaded? And they say, well, LA law says that we're allowed to carry a firearm in a moving car, but it can't be loaded. So it wasn't, but it is now. And so there's this kind of standoff between them where they're standing up for... Now, I'm not saying that's right. I'm not agreeing with that approach necessarily, but it just was a light bulb moment for me that they were actually standing up within their context, in their identity. And there was a lady on the street, according to the story in the movie, who said, I think I've died and gone to heaven. Because <laughs> <laughs> these guys were actually um, calling out oppression and doing that as African-Americans. And it actually it was interesting, isn't it? Because in the 70s, that impulse to become proud of their heritage, their African heritage, led to the whole soul movement and the... Um, you know, the disco movement, um, even white people started frizzing their hair up and, you know, big platform shoes and African clothes and it became quite a stylish thing to be African after they stood up and were proud of their identity. So I think what we did in the 90s was say, we're Christians, we are cross-centred Christians. Yes, Jesus did incarnate and he became a Jew to the Jews, but he came so that he would challenge their culture and call them to trust in him because only he could solve the biggest problem they had, which was their own sin. And so we felt that we needed to not only go out of the church to share that, uh, to share Jesus with them, but to actually be, um, to say, to, to be clear in that message. There was a saying back in the day which said, um, you know, your life speaks more than your words as a Christian. But, you know, this is where we're going to go with the idea of revisiting incarnational youth ministry because it's about place sharing which we should talk about in a sec but before we do i think my difference to root is that i think we need to share the love of jesus and the truth of jesus with people not just share the love of jesus in our life and that's what paul does in 1 thessalonians 1 7 i think uh, he says i didn't only come to preach the message with you i came to share my life so I think my critique of the incarnational model is there's a there's a, an attempt to recapture sharing life with people, but I think we need to still share the message. And to do that authentically is to, I think, actually understand that idea of hegemony and how it's affected the Christian church and that we don't need to be cool anymore. We can just be Christian and then we can actually go as Christians to be in spaces with people. So I hope that's helpful. Mm. Can I um, turn the tables on you, Joel, Absolutely. and ask you a question? Please. Um, one of the other things that Root is trying to critique in his approach 
Uh, and one, one of the things that he sees as being manipulative is that a typical relational view can see the the person you're trying to be in relationship with as more of a target than a person. Uh, so there's this almost this de- dehumanizing of the other person that they're just a, a ticker box um, yeah, right. uh, approach um, rather than actually genuinely wanting to know them and be with them. Uh, whether or not they accept Christ, you're actually genuinely interested in them as a person. So my question for you is, I mean, have someone who was at that school where, you know, Stu and Tim and others walk in um, and seeking to be in relationship with you, did you ever feel like uh, a target, like, you know, as a, you know, a ticker box that they were trying to um, work on uh, rather than an actual person? And if not, why not? I don't think so. I'm trying to remember. It was such a long time ago. <laughs> but um, must have been like, yeah, it must be like 18, 19 years ago. But I think um, as, as just you was talking about um, coming into school clothed in Christ, the thing I just, just remember is they used to cop a lot of, you had to walk all the way across from the back gate of where we went. I mean, technological high school, not very technological, but anyway, a very salubrious name. Yes, it was. <laughs> um, used to walk, have to park at the back gate, walk all the way across the entire playground to back where we would have chip lunch on a Friday. And I remember there was a a group of the guys that are in our year that actually sat up on a seat. It was actually outside the girls' toilets, and they used to give you a lot of. A very hard time. They're like, "Hey, churchy boy," and all that kind of stuff. They used to, I think used to, they used to throw stuff at you. Didn't yeah, they, they did. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so I, that was the first thing. Was like, well, this guy keeps co- these guys. It was you and Tim Baldwin yeah, most yeah. of the time. These guys keep coming back. And even Matt came later. Yeah, but yeah, Tim yes. and I to start off with. Yeah. Um, these guys keep coming back, even though these guys are giving them a hard time. So I think there was something like, oh, there's a little bit interesting. I don't think I felt like a target. I think it was very open to be like, you can come here if you want or you don't have to be here. Like, I think that was the real thing. And it was like, but it's hard to, it's hard to uh, drill down into the very reason why we decided to keep staying there. And I think there was, there's just, there was just something like, I'm just curious and I don't know why. And like, and again, cause like it was, but it was also like our group of friends, Hey, we're just going to do this. Like it's, these guys are just talking about Jesus. And I think it was cause initially we had scripture at school, which was like, Funny enough, it was like we're all in our year groups of year seven, year eight. <laughs> um, and it was originally, but then we had at Gaimir also an optional uh, scripture lesson on a Tuesday afternoon. So it was seeing the same people to keep coming up who are overtly Christian, including Fiona, who was her um, scripture teacher. There was a link between the scripture, te- the scripture teaching the Tuesday afternoons and then the Friday afternoons. It's like these guys keep coming up and all they're doing is just wanting to talk to us and be friends with us. I think that was where I was mostly thinking like I need to keep coming back Mm. because it was also like there's also, again, a factor of that the coolness thing is like older people want to talk to me because when you're just limited to your year group, it's like, and, you know, you're a teenager and trying to figure out who you are and all that kind of stuff. It's like... I need some. I needed a bit of help there, and you like you 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 almost maybe not even intentionally rebel against your parents. You're like, oh, they're so old. So if you've got like someone in the middle kind of thing coming to talk to you about um, just how you're going in life, and I remember Stu used to share the things that were going on with your son Ethan. Like, oh, can you pray for my son Ethan? He's got a back. He's having to wear a back brace again, and all that kind of stuff. And we're like, 
And even at the time, we were like, oh, that sucks. But it was kind of like, don't know why he's telling us this. <laughs> but again, you were trying to build relationship, Stewie. And I think that's where that was really key. So I don't think, to answer your question, sorry, Tim, I don't feel like it was a box-ticking exercise. Um, so there's, that's my answer, I suppose, is that, yeah. What about you, Tim? Like, similar, you grew, up in a, you grew up in a Christian household, but also went to a Christian school. How did you end up getting involved in the same kind of youth ministry that we, we both went to the ended up going to the same youth ministry, although you were a little bit before me. What, what was your experience? Uh, yeah. So, I mean, we talked about this a bit on a chip lunch episode, but uh, I mean, it, Guymere was the church that my parents were at. So, I mean, I just went to youth group because that's what you did as a good church kid. You just keep <laughs> going, you go through Sunday school, then you go to youth group. Yeah. Um, what was strange, um, we talked about this a number of times, is the fact that uh, us, us churchy kids were in the minority. Um, so there were very large year seven, eight, year nine, ten groups. Um, and maybe a dozen of us were from church or church adjacent families. Um, and then you'd be, have 30 to 40 or more um, who were from completely unchurched homes. Um, and so there was uh, a few of us that, um, uh, yeah, were, were from church families. And we also saw each other on Sunday mornings. We, have a, we had what was called Breakfast Club, um, which was a year seven, eight uh, group for high schoolers uh, on a Sunday morning. Um, but the other thing that was unusual was uh, for me personally was that I was, I think the only one, maybe a mate of mine came a couple of times, but the other Christian kids, uh, church family kids there also went to Kirawee High. So they knew all of the non-church kids from school. So I had, in some ways it was a little lonely experience uh, in that um, I wasn't best friends with these other church family kids. I didn't go to school with them. I didn't spend most of my week with them. Um, and when I did come on Friday night, uh, they knew all 80 whatever kids that were there and I kind of knew them, but I wasn't their first priority because they knew all these people from school. Um, and so one of the things that was really significant for me was the fact that I had leaders there uh, at youth group who were genuinely seeking me out and genuinely incorporating me into that. Um, and so leaders like Jenny Stoddard, Shane Smiltniks, Daryl Barden, uh, a number of other uh, really amazing leaders that, uh, again, like your experience going to chip lunch, um, we didn't have that at our school. But at church, it was the same kind of thing. Here were these adults that genuinely wanted to know us and include us um, and share with us the thing that was most important to them, which was their relationship with Jesus. Mm. Um, and so all of that was done so holistically uh, that, yeah, it was, it was really um, attractive. <laughs> yeah, like you, you wanted to be there. You wanted to keep mm. coming. Um, and so being known and valued and loved um, and included um, during that uh, was really significant. I think that's an interesting link is that, that both of us, different experiences for both of us, non-Christian family for me, Christian family for you. But there was a link between, uh, it's cool that yeah, older people are hanging out with you, but it's also like these little touch points that you've had during the week with someone who is overtly Christian. I think that's what's really interesting, um, which then turned into us being more curious about why, why do these people want to keep hanging out with me? 
Um, Stu, you're obviously the architect of that kind of ministry to a certain degree. What what would you say in response to what we're actually talking about? Because it, it feels like the relational aspect of incarnational ministry, that that's kind of what we're talking about there. But then the difference also is that those people were overtly Christian first. It wasn't their coolness that was identifying, mm. like we were identifying with. It was like these people are just wanting to build relationships because they want to share, as Tim said, the love of Jesus. Yeah, well, we, we were consciously trying not to try and be cool to win your you know your approval so we weren't looking to earn the right to be heard we weren't trying to use incarnational frameworks we were um, moving out of the church a lot and hanging out with teenagers where they hung out but as christians and we did it together with other christians too so it wasn't just individual adults hanging out with non-christian teenagers as it appears to be uh, root might have been uh, experiencing those kind of uh, relationships in his earlier youth ministries we used to go together and be like taking our community to the street as well as inviting people from the street to come to our community and people knew us from our community we had certain cultural artifacts that we used to share Um, we used to flash a one-way meaning jesus is lord instead of cool or hang loose or whatever you know you the the surfer kind of way of doing things uh one way was just the index finger going like that so when we meet each other we just go one way um drive past people they'd give it one way uh, we used to wear jesus beads uh, i was listening to a podcast the other day that was sort of a bit divisive derisive of um christians using those colors to help people remember the gospel but we did use those colors and and we used the colors to help us to remember our identity in christ and uh it was a really cool thing we could even tap into that another episode but um when i came to school it was about being present with people who don't already go to church but not trying to look cool so obviously we weren't looking cool as we walked into Gaimi High as kids were throwing stuff at us and calling us churchy uh if, you know like you you Joel were into football and I knew you were into football and I could have tapped into that and come across as a super cool youth minister because I used to play reps I used to play a grade I I follow a European uh, an English football team that was pretty cool and good <laughs> in the 90s but not so much now but um i could have tapped into that but i actually was more self-deprecating about that because my team had actually just recently got relegated and you guys out of the premier league and you guys used to enjoy making fun of me a little bit of that and i didn't mind that so rather than trying to be cool i was actually just being myself i love my football team whether they're in the second division or the first and you guys used to find that fun and um i think um that's the first thing. Second thing I'd, I reckon I'd like to say though too is I do like how Root is trying to um, think about uh, are there any other models for relational ministry other than the Jim Rayburn uh, style of youth ministry that came up in the 30s and 40s and 50s. Uh, and he taps back even earlier into Dietrich Bonhoeffer who's become quite popular since Andrew Root. Many people started reading him. I'm a big fan of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was a a German theologian during the Second World War was quite famous for his stand against Hitler and his writings about community and discipleship and that discipleship should be costly. And I think I tapped into his costly discipleship idea and dove deeper into the atonement that the cross of Christ actually gives us a great model of relationship that's about being servants and being sacrificial rather than coming in and being cool and trying to present this great cool model of Christianity. I wanted to serve you guys. And so we would say to the youth leaders, let's be a peer group that the kids could grow up into. And one of the things we had to decide to do if that was going to be the case is we weren't going to drink on Saturday night because you guys were underage and you couldn't drink. So we decided we chose not to drink on Saturday nights as a sacrificial 
relational aspect that came straight from Dietrich Bonhoeffer's idea of costly discipleship, which I think is really deeply rooted in the atonement and how Jesus shows us what love is by offering himself as a sacrifice for us. And our response is to be living sacrifices according to Romans 12. So that costly discipleship is what I got out of Bonhoeffer. But interestingly, what Root does is he goes a little bit uh, prior to those years of those wartime years of Dietrich Bonhoeffer and looks at his youth ministry. And not many people know, but Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a youth minister first. And his youth ministry was go outside the church and go and visit all the families and go and minister to them where they were. And I think quite accurately, Root celebrates that aspect of Bonhoeffer and seeks to see that as an incarnational impulse. But out of that, what I really like about what Root does is he says, let's reinvent what youth ministry is. So let's, let's reinvent the youth pastor's role, the church's role, and the, and the family's role in youth ministry. And one of the things he says about reinventing the youth pastor's role in 2008, which I think was seismic, is he says, let's stop trying to be cool. Let's actually stop being manipulative. Stop trying to be cool. Let's stop trying to uh, present a cool Christianity. And let's actually stop making clicks in the church. And that was something that I share with uh, him, which we could come back to in another episode. I think one of the unfortunate things about our churches is we've become so used to pluralism and so used to pluralized ministries in the homogeneous unit principle that we think cliques are a way of doing ministry, that people form exclusive little peer groups within a church and they actually mean that they unfortunately leave some people out, even if it's unintentional. And I think one of my life's goals is to be, let's get rid of cliques, let's all be a family. And I think that's why intergenerational ministry gives us a new model to do that because it gives us a really clear idea that you don't have to be like your parents to be in relationship with them. You don't have to have anything in common with your grandparents. You're just in the family. So your DNA means that you have a relationship with them. And our spiritual DNA is that Christ reconciled us to God by dying on the cross and rising from the dead. And Christ reconciled us to him as a heavenly father. And now we're part of his family adopted to be his children. And also Christ has reconciled us to one another. So it's not about me trying to help people fit in or me trying to create a cool youth group for people. It's about preaching the word of God so that people can hear the gospel. And when they hear the gospel, they respond to the gospel. And I think my pushback on root, if I understand it correctly, is I think I'm a bit more overt in my preaching of the gospel when I go into those spaces to be with people. And some people might say that's manipulative because you've got a, you know, you're not just being friends with people to be in their world you're actually got an outcome in mind but i i think that it's not manipulative if you present that outcome at the very beginning that you say well i'm a christian and i'd really like to introduce you to my friend jesus i don't think that's manipulative and by clearly stating that for teenagers and then giving them spaces to explore that at their own pace i think that's really good because then you can have a conversation about faith with people to help them i think that um to wrap that up on a final point, Stuart, it reminded me of when you speak about how certain systems or approaches to ministry become institutionalised, especially mm. like the homogeneous unit principle and stuff. But what you're talking about there is, um, and what you've spoken about before, is institutionalising relationships mm. centred on the cross of Christ. Yep. So I'd really love you guys just to, just to wrap this episode up, just to reflect on that a little bit, because I think that would be a really good way to finish. Because that's what we thoughts? that's what we experienced in church, Tim. So I, I think it yeah, would yeah, be cool yeah. if you could, if you feel like you can. Is like how do we continue to institutionalize relationships based on Jesus? 
not on based on trying to be cool or embrace coolness or that kind of thing where we think that the uh, incarnational impulse kind of leads us towards. Yeah. Um, one thought that comes to mind is the, the security you have in your own identity as someone who is saved by Jesus. Um, and the, you, as, as you form your identity based on what, how Jesus describes us as, as known and loved and um, reconciled, and then go out and to be a, a reconciler to others, as Paul talks about in, in 2 Corinthians, then uh, I think that gives you the confidence that you don't have to be cool. Like you don't have to be accepted based on other externalities. Um, uh, and actually, it doesn't really matter if you're accepted because of your actual identity in Christ as well, because that's just, it's who you are, um, and that's the most important um, aspect of ourselves. And so, uh, yeah, I think that we, we, as we go into these spaces and, and place share with teenagers and with children and others, um, part of that is, well, of course we bring our identity as a reconciled child of God uh, who has been given a task of reconciliation um, into that space. Um, I think, right, uh, sorry, I think Root is right <laughs> in um, saying that, warning against uh, dehumanizing that other person um, and actually, no, you, you genuinely care for them and want them. Um, but because we are humanizing them, because we actually genuinely care for them as a person, then of course we also are trying to seek to know them through the agency of reconciliation that we've been given. Um, and so the other identity I think of, you know, when I think about Stu is, yeah, you're a Sheffield Wednesday supporter. Um, and, and actually, yeah, whether it was the 90s uh, and the team was amazing and whether now we've been, you know, relegated again. Um, and, and actually, I love how you say we, Tim. That makes we, me, warms my heart. And also, <laughs> also amazing. But <laughs> Go on, mate. Sorry. Um, I've been, it's, this is the thing I've been caught. I mean, the only thing I know about English Premier League is Sheffield Wednesday. Um, <laughs> I wouldn't be able to name any other team. <laughs> um, but the that's just part of your identity uh, and you're secure enough in that identity that you don't need to chop and change your team. You don't need to suddenly pretend to be um, a fan of some other team because they're doing well at the moment or in order to connect with kids. Uh, your ability to be self-deprecating about that and uh, just to be joyful in the fact that that's okay, uh, the team's not doing great at the moment, that's okay. Um and I think that's something we need to capture more of. One of the things I want to explore more is this idea that as Christians, we're increasingly a minority in our secular Western nations. Um, and this security of who we are in our identity as Christ, uh, if, we, if we've got that right and we're so secure in that, then it actually doesn't matter. Uh, and this is another part of our cultural moment. We're coming out of a time where... Um, Christianity, church going was the hegemony. Um, and we're now a long way past that. Mm. And I think there's a lot of Christians, particularly of those who were in a generation who had lived through that moment, who aren't quite sure what to do with that, mm. um, that they're no longer in positions of cultural power. Um, and I think part of the answer to that, as well as part of how we do mission to teenagers and children, um, which is our primary focus here on this podcast, that, um, it's that identity, the security and identity in Christ, um, that it doesn't matter uh, whether that's cool or not. It doesn't matter if that's accepted or not. Um, I just know who I am. 
Yep. And, yep. That, and that gentle and humble confidence that comes out of that allows me to be in relationship with everyone. Yeah, that's really cool because Paul says that explicitly in Colossians, be clothed with Christ. So I think that's really important. And how do we be clothed with Christ? I think being biblical Christians is really important and that's often scoffed at by even some Christians these days who say that sometimes, oh, Christians hide behind being biblical Christians as a phrase uh, to justify all sorts of different things. But uh, I, I think it's actually really important that we have the Bible at the centre of all our gatherings. And one of the things we've really explored is being a biblical community as we gather as church, being biblical in our youth and children's context, but also in our social context. And my encouragement to people is to think about, yes, be, uh, be in context with people who don't go to church, but is the Bible present with you all the time or is it just when you go to church? Don't compartmentalise yourself to be a biblical person when you go to church. You might go for a surf and then come out of the surf and get a, get a Bible out and have a read afterwards or have a pray before you jump in the water and thank God for the opportunity to go for a surf. Um, if you're in a coffee shop with your friends, why not pull out an iPhone and have a read together and share? Not, not to show other people, but, but to just make it part of your everyday life. And that's authentic. It's not manipulative. You don't just pull a Bible out in a coffee shop so people go, oh, look, that person's reading a Bible. You, you know, people will notice. But the real reason is that you want to be authentic and you don't want to be manipulative, that you, you are not one person when you're at church and another person when you're in the world. So rather than taking the worldview or the hermeneutic of the world and bring it into the church to try and make the church better, um, that's hegemony. And like Tim said, there's now a new secular hegemony that is that is ruling. It's, there was a Christian hegemony that we were honestly saying in this podcast had its shadows. As Gramsci said, it was maybe even being used by some people to oppress um, the working class back in the 30s in Italy. I don't know, it wasn't there. But what I do know is that Christians have been preaching the Bible to people for many generations. And within every generation, there is an attempt to even push against... Um, uh, you know, um, all all oppression and hegemony, where it comes from people who call themselves church leaders or not. Um, but now in our generation, we have a secular hegemony that we have to, I think, be careful that we don't fall into the same uh, lie that if we become cool like the world and we bring in a hermeneutic or a worldview into the church that's right-wing or you know political or a hermeneutic that's left-wing political that somehow will be more righteous as left-wing christians or right-wing christians or if we bring in a surfing culture hermeneutic into the church and we're surfer christians and we're somehow more righteous we're not we need to be christian first and then take that hermeneutic that worldview to the world and yeah I, I think that's where where i'm excited to continue to explore on this podcast and why podcasting is such a great format because it's like an ongoing thought process and love to hear people's thoughts on this yeah exactly well i, I love that that we kind of finished up is that jesus and his death on the cross is the leveler for all of us and that's mm-hmm. where we our relationship starts so that's really cool but that is going to wrap us up for this episode of the shock absorber thank you very much for joining us guys thank you tim and thank you Stu. Really enjoyed that conversation. Um, if you're listening or watching, you can always check out um, our other podcasts that we have, which is the Chip Lunch podcast, where we talk about different people uh, growing up as Christians and their experiences of that. We also have our digital gatherings, if you're interested in that. But also, um, save the date for the 30th of October this year coming up. We'll have the Shock Absorber Conference, where we discuss all things intergenerational ministry, especially with a focus on hospitality and, and meals and the importance of that. So we'll be doing that. And um, if you have any questions, you can get on the Discord server, which we have, and you can click the link in the show notes and also email me, if you like, joel at shockabsorber.com.au. Oh, almost 
choked on on dot com dot au. Joel at shogasorba.com.au and as we always like to finish up uh, with a, a cultural artifact of our own, Stu. One way. One way. One way.